Hey everyone, and welcome to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. Thank you for joining us today. We hope that today's message encourages and inspires you and helps you on your journey to discover and follow the will of God. To obtain a typed outline in today's message, you can go to the show notes or the details page of your podcast platform. In this episode, we continue on in our God Wins series in Revelation with a look at chapters 10 and 11. And now, here's Tom Claiborne with his message called A Mighty Angel, A Provocative Message, and A Ruling Lord. All right, turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. A mighty angel, a provocative message, and a ruling Lord. Revelation 10 and 11. He was a rugged sea captain many years ago who had weathered many storms at sea. He loved his work but was very reluctant to take along his small daughter and expose her to the dangers that often arose at sea. But she kept asking, she kept pleading, someday to be able to go with her dad on the ship. So finally he agreed to take her. Before many days had gone by, what he had feared the most happened. A bad storm hit their ship full blast. The captain determined that he would have to go up and take the helm of the ship himself. And he was at his post steering the ship when to his horror he looked out on the deck and saw his little daughter struggling to get across that wave-washed deck to where he was. After nearly being swept overboard several times, she finally reached her destination next to her father. The father held her securely securely in one arm while he continued steering the ship with the other. But he shouted to his young daughter above the noise of the storm, What are you doing here? She said, I had to ask you a question. She said, Is the God of the land the same as the God of the sea? And without hesitation, he replied, yes, he is. Pray to God. He is the Lord of heaven and earth and both the land and the sea. Many of us have asked that basic question in some form as we have faced storms in our own lives. We've asked the question, can God really take care of me? Is he big enough? Does he care? Is God really in control? Revelation 10 opens with a dramatic vision of a great angel standing with one foot in the sea and one foot on the land. And it's a rather impressive image of God's special messenger demonstrating the Lord's absolute sovereignty over heaven and earth. He is the Lord of the land, and He is the Lord of the sea. He is not a small, impotent idol who's confined to some kind of a shrine or a single location. 
The people at the time of the book of Revelation needed to see that in the midst of their hard times and persecution. They needed that image of a God who was in control. So God sent a series of visions that we call the book of Revelation to give his people at that time assurance. And he used images and symbols to keep reminding them that he was absolutely in control even when it did not seem like it. And he would continue to be in control until Jesus returned. Last Sunday, in two difficult chapters in Revelation 8 and 9, six trumpets sounded a warning about God and his coming judgment and calling people to repent and return to God. Those chapters were primarily directed to people who were not walking with God. And today, in chapter 11, verse 15, the seventh and final trumpet will sound. But chapter 10 then becomes kind of an interlude, giving us a glimpse of events on earth in between that time before and that time when God would come at the very end. And it has a lot to do with God's message that you and I are to be sharing in our life right now with other people. So my first point on your outline talks about that message, and we're going to spend probably a little over half of the message on this first point, so that's just a heads up. And here, here it is. God's gospel must be shared no matter what. That's the primary message of Revelation 10 and 11. Verses 1 through 3 of chapter 10 say this. Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven. He was robed in a cloud with a rainbow above his head, and his face was like the sun, and his legs were like fiery pillars. He was holding a little scroll which lay open in his hand. He planted his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land. And he gave a loud shout like the roar of a lion when he shouted the voices of the seven thunders spoke. So we see another scroll and another message, very similar to the scroll in chapter 5 that nobody could open but Jesus. But what we begin to see in chapters 10 and 11 are some messengers, some messengers taking this message. And the first is this mighty angel, and I think there's an image that kind of uh, tries to capture what John might have seen uh, in that image. Now we don't know, this may have been Gabriel the famous angel in the Bible. This may have been Michael, the archangel. It may be the same angel that appeared in chapter 5, verse 2. We don't know. But he's calling for the attention of the entire world, those on the land and those on the sea. He's calling for everybody to listen. And yet there's a hidden aspect to this message because verse 4 says, And when the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write. And this is John saying, I'm about to write. But I heard a voice from heaven say, seal up what the seven thunders have said and do not write it down. <laughs> do not write it down. Now that phrase is a subtle reminder that God knows far more about the future that he's going to tell us. And it's probably better that way. And maybe it's an act of grace on God's part that God does not tell any of us 
everything about the future in our personal lives or even the very end. Continues on in verses 5 and 6. Then the angel I had seen standing on the sea and on the land raised his right hand to heaven. And he swore by him who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and all that is in them, the earth and all that is in it, and the sea and all that is in it, and said, and this is an important phrase, there will be no more delay. If you'll recall back in chapter 6, two weeks ago, we saw where the martyrs were pictured under an altar asking God, how long is it going to be before you take justice on those who have done this? God says, hold on a little bit longer. Well, now God says, there will be no more delay. In other words, God's saying in chapter 10, he's getting ready to take care of business. But then God calls for more messengers beside the angel. In verse 7, it says this, But in the days when the seventh angel is about to sound his trumpet, the mystery of God will be accomplished, just as he announced to his servants the prophets. So the next messengers God refers to are the prophets who have played such a key role in the history of the world in communicating God's message to other people. And there's an interesting phrase in verse 7 that appears elsewhere in the New Testament, the mystery of God. Again, that's well, that hint that we're not always going to understand everything along the way in life just as they didn't throughout Bible times. That phrase, the mystery of God, appears in Ephesians 3, 8-11. It appears in Colossians 1, 25-27. And it also appears in Romans 16, verse 25-27. It says, Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ, in keeping with the revelation of the, here it is, mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. The message, the mystery that's now being revealed. So here it is again, that phrase in Revelation 10 being fully carried out. The message of the prophets finally unveiled. But then there's another messenger we see here, and it's verse 8 through 10. And this is John himself who's recording this. It says, Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me once more. Go take the scroll that lies open in the hand of the angel who was standing on the, on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and asked him to give me the little scroll. He said to me, Take it and eat it. Now notice what happens. It says, It will turn your stomach sour, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. Then I was told, you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. It's very similar, those of you who know your Old Testament well, to an incident in Ezekiel chapter 2 and 3, where God appears to Ezekiel, has a scroll, has him eat it, tastes good in his mouth, turns his stomach sour. God uses a lot of these images multiple times in the Bible. But the point is, this message, as we're able in the last book of the Bible to put all this stuff together, the message that's being talked about here is the gospel. It's the message, the saving message of Christ and what Christ did for us, the gospel that saves us. Now, a little bit of background. In chapter 8 and 9 last week, it was all about judgment. And it was judgment on those who do not belong to God. 
And what it's saying after those two chapters about this is what's going to happen to those who do not belong to God, chapters 8 and 9, chapters 10 and 11 say, hey, someone needs to tell those people. Someone who has that message, like my church, needs to go tell those people so they don't experience that judgment that's described in chapters 8 and 9. So we read about that message in these two chapters. And it is, first of all, a sweet message. Chapter 10, verse 10 says, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. Now, that's an image that, uh, that Psalm 119 gives, and there's other places as well. But in verse 103, it says, How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. An image often given for how the word of God should be accepted by us. So the gospel message is sweet because it's a message of forgiveness. It's a message of redemption. It's a message of hope and new life through Jesus Christ. No matter who we are or how bad we've been or what we've done, it's a message of hope. You see, the first six trumpets had sounded last week offering people warnings and opportunities to turn to God. And God is saying in these chapters, you who know me, you who are in my church, you have the message. And you can do something about those people who don't know me yet. You see, the gospel is life-giving. That's why it's sweet. Decades ago, I clipped something, and I've shared this many times in print and reading and everything else. It's simply as if the Bible is talking to us, and it says, I am the Bible. Listen how it describes the Word of God. I am the Bible, God's wonderful library. I am always and above all the truth. To the weary pilgrim, I am a strong staff. To the one who sits in darkness, I am glorious light. To those who stumble beneath heavy burdens, I am sweet rest. To, the, to him who has lost his way, I am a safe guide. To those who are sick in sin, I am healing strength and forgiveness. To the... To the to the discouraged, I am a glad message of hope. To those who are distressed and tossed about by the storms of life, I am an anchor, sure and steady. To those who search for salvation, I reveal the Savior of the world. I am the Bible, God's holy word. God's word is a sweet message. But the fact is, it's also, secondly, a sour message. A bitter message. The middle of verse 2, after he says, I took the little scroll from the angel's hand and ate it. It tasted as sweet as honey in my mouth. But when I had eaten it, my stomach turned sour. In other words, it was more bitter than it had appeared at first. <laughs> kind of reminds me of a funny story I read one time about a teacher come to the end of the school year, elementary class. And the custom in this school was, uh, and this was several years ago, was for each child to bring a, you know, a gift for the teacher the last day of school. So uh, at the, that last day, she sits down to begin to open up the gifts. And she knew a lot of the kids and the parents, and sometimes she knew what to expect. And matter of fact, when the little boy walked up with his present, uh, she knew that his father owned a flower shop. So she kind of shook it and acted uh, uh, like she didn't know what it was. And she goes, well, she goes, I bet I know what it is. I bet it's flowers. And the boy says, that's right. How did you know? And she goes, well, just a wild guess. Well, then the next pupil comes up, and she's the candy store owner's daughter. And the teacher says, she shakes the box, says, I think I, I bet I know what this is. 
I bet it's a box of sweets. And the little girl goes, yeah, it is. How did you know? She goes, just a wild guess, just a wild guess. Well, the next boy that came up was the, the, uh, the son of the liquor store owner in town. So the teacher took the package up over her head, and she's shaking it, and it, and it was leaking. So she touched a bit of the, the leakage and put it on her tongue, and she goes, is it, is it wine? And the boy goes, no. And then she takes another uh, touch of it and puts it on her tongue. Is it, is it champagne? And he goes, no, no. And, she, and finally she goes, well, I give up. What is it? And the little boy shouts with excitement, it's a puppy. And all of a sudden, things turned very sour. <laughs> she was expecting something else. You know, John here said that that message that was so anticipated and sounded so good turned sour. Verse 11, he says, Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. In other words, speaking to the people of the world would involve saying some negative, bitter, sour things about judgment and about wrath. That was chapter 8 and 9, and that's part of the message. See, that message would upset some people, John's being told. So they would go after the messenger, and they would persecute people like John and others who would give that negative message of judgment. You see, God offered his message of salvation to absolutely everyone, but many people to this day still reject that message. And eventually the grace period will end, and it'll be a sour message to those who have rejected it. So what's the practical lesson for you and me from Revelation 10 in light of that? Well, like the angel and the prophets and John you and I have a message to share with the world. It is a sweet message, and it's also a sour message, but we are told to share it. It's sweet for those who will accept it. It is sour for those who will reject it. But you and I have a lot of people that we need to tell so they can at least make their choice themselves. And hopefully so it can become sweet for them. Folks, we need to make sure we do not fail in spreading God's gospel message. We need to be like the elevator operator who years ago uh, loved to tell people about Jesus, and he explained, I'm just a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. He didn't know everything about the Bible, but he knew that. He goes, I'm a nobody telling everybody about somebody who can save anybody. And his name is Jesus. But we sure do wimp out at times, don't we? We're often far too quiet <laughs> with this message. Some of us have known it for 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 years and don't tell it like we should. There was a comedian back in the 1970s that a few of us old people remember named Flip Wilson. And that was back when comedians could make fun of about anybody and not get in trouble. <laughs> And uh, one day, he, was, he got on the Jehovah's Witnesses. And he said, he goes, I'm a Jehovah's bystander. He goes, they invited me to be a witness, but I didn't want to get involved. <laughs> I wonder if sometimes we're like that. 
we're God's bystanders. We know the message. We've been in the church for years, maybe decades, and we're just bystanders because we don't want to get involved enough to be uncomfortable talking to somebody at work or talking to somebody at school or saying something uncomfortable to somebody. Are you just a bystander because you're afraid to speak up? Will you be a witness for God? Will you be a witness like Peter Yasek? I read his story over the past uh, two weeks. My family got me this book for Christmas, my daughter and son-in-law, Imprisoned with ISIS. Peter Yasek works for Voice of the Martyrs, a ministry that helps persecuted Christians. He was on a trip a few years ago to the country of Sudan in Africa. After finishing his work, going to the airport, ready to leave, ready to get literally on the plane, he was arrested in the airport. And he then spent from December 2015 to February 2017 in three different prisons in Sudan. 445 days of horrible suffering and abuse and torture, including a stint in a cell with six ISIS terrorists. Reflecting back toward the end of the book, he talks about a time he thought he was going to be released and wasn't. And he writes this, In March 2016, when I thought I was going to be released, I felt frustrated with God for keeping me in prison. I wanted to go home to be with my family. I wanted to go back to my church in the Czech Republic and worship with them like before. But after prison, I saw the situation in a different way. He goes, the Lord had better things in store for me. He was keeping me in Sudan for a reason. He was preparing me to preach the gospel at Omdurman prison and at Al-Huda prison and at Kober prison and to show the love of God to my interrogators and lawyers in the court proceedings. God's timing is always better than our own. When I stopped thinking about myself, I stopped feeling miserable, and I saw a larger plan taking shape. He says, for me, my experiences in prison in Sudan were a profound opportunity to proclaim Christ, even if it brought personal pain. You see, Peter Yossik understood that every Christian is to share that message wherever they are, no matter what. And as a result, when he did that, he was able to share Christ with prisoners from different countries, with ISIS terrorists, with political prisoners all over the spectrum in three different prisons. He was able to lead people to Christ because he was willing to share the message no matter what. Will you be a witness like Peter Yasek? Will you be a witness like a woman named Mai Bo in China, or fondly known in her time as Auntie Mai Bo. She was a medical doctor into her 80s and was still a faithful Christian follower. One point, she was storing Bibles uh, in her home that had been smuggled into the, her area. And then when the time was right, they would take the Bibles from her home out to the people who needed them. Well, one day the security police raided her home. They gathered up all these Bibles she had been storing and carried them off. After they left, she was looking around and she realized there was one thing they had missed. They had missed a videotape copy of the movie about Jesus' life, just simply called Jesus. So what did she do? On one hand, she's thinking, wow, they, didn't, they missed this. Well, she decided to 
take the video, go to the police station. She walked into the police station, asked for the chief of police, and here's what she said. Sir, earlier today, your men raided my house and took all the Bibles I had stored there. I understand that they were just doing their job, but after they left, I noticed that they missed this videotape. She holds up this Jesus movie. She goes, I need to know from you, now watch what she's doing here. I need to know from you if this is acceptable material or not. Would you and your staff check it for me? She's arranging so they'll watch it. Very well, come back in, in two weeks, they told her. And as she left the building, these were the words of her prayer to God. She says, thank you, Lord. How else could I get the Beijing chief of police with his staff to watch the Jesus video? Auntie Maybo understood that God's gospel must be shared no matter what. Until the return of Jesus, we too must tell the story from God's scroll, the gospel message of Christ, no matter what. But something happens when we do that. And that's your second main point. Like I said, that was my long one. And here it is. God's people will be opposed until Christ returns. Now, I'm sorry if you came here today looking for all good news, but this is reality. <laughs> God's people will be opposed until Christ returns. Revelation 11 is one of the most difficult sections of the book. There are lots and lots and lots of interpretations, but let's not miss the main message. All right, here's the first four verses. John says, I was given a reed like a measuring rod and was told, go and measure the temple of God in the altar and count the worshipers there. But exclude the outer court. Do not measure it because it was given to the Gentiles. That's a very important point. They will trample on the holy city for 42 months. And I will give power to my two witnesses and they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. What God does here is gives John a vision that has four aspects to it. There's four images to describe the people of God, all the followers of God. The four images are first as a temple, the Old Testament temple, then as two witnesses, and that's the controversial part with a lot of people, then two olive trees, and are also described as two lampstands. I think it's four images to describe the people of God. Now, like we have an image that might kind of sort of show that. The, the, you can't really see the witnesses that are kind of blended in with the tree there. But the first image is that of a temple. A vision of the temple that had once stood in Jerusalem so that God could make a spiritual application. Now, he tells John to measure the temple, the sacred area, the holy area, and that's an image from Ezekiel 40 and 42 and Zechariah 2. And the temple and the altar represent God's people. The outer court, he says, don't measure that because that represents those who are not God's people. And what God was saying is, I want you to measure out the people that are mine that belong to me because those are the ones I'm going to take care of. I'm going to protect them from the judgment. They are sealed by my spirit. They are God's spiritual temple. I'm going to take care of them. Then the next image is of two witnesses. <coughs> and boy, there are lots of views about this. But look again at verse 3, and we'll go down to verse 6. I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. 
These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord, Lord of the earth. If anyone tries to harm them, fire comes from their mouths and devours their enemies. This is how anyone who wants to harm them must die. These men have power to shut up the sky so that it will not rain during the time they are prophesying. It's an Old Testament image. And they have power to turn the waters into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they want. Another image from the Old Testament. There are a lot of ideas about who these two witnesses are or who they represent from the past. Some have said Elijah and Elisha. Some have said Zerubbabel and Joshua who appear in Zechariah 4 and there's two olive trees and, and lampstands. A lot of people believe this has a clear reference to somebody that would represent Moses and Elijah. Moses, of course, turned uh, water into blood in the plagues in Egypt. Elijah prayed for rain to stop. They both appear with Jesus at the transfiguration, a special role in history. Other people have said, well, it could be the law and the prophets. It could represent the law and the gospel. It could represent the Old Testament and the New Testament. Some said Israel and the church, the church and the Bible, various martyrs, the Holy Spirit and the apostles, the apostles and prophets, Peter and John. Some believe well, it's two entirely new people that will appear at the end of time, two literal people. My answer is take your pick. <laughs> take your pick. But my idea is also this. I think largely they represent God's people speaking for him throughout the Christian age until the return of Christ. So yeah, Moses and Elijah, yeah, people who were preaching that message in the 1200s and the 1600s, and you and me sharing that message to those who need to hear it. Did you notice the symbolism also? Deuteronomy said that for a testimony to be accepted in court there had to be at least two witnesses jesus when he first sent his disciples out to, to begin them uh training them to share the message sent them out in groups of two see these images kind of go through, all the way through the bible but the point is even if something specific in the future is meant by these two witnesses the greatest lesson that you and i can take away from this room today is that God has called his people to be his witnesses until Jesus returns. And that means you at work and at school and me everywhere I am this week. So let's not sit back and wait for two future witnesses to do what God has clearly called us to do right now in our lives, right now in our communities, right now in our businesses, because our testimony can't be stopped. Though individual Christians can be silenced or slain, God's truth marches on, and we get to be part of that as his messengers. But that brings opposition now and in the future. Look at verses 7 through 10. Not pretty. It says, Now when they have finished their testimony, these witnesses, the beast that comes up from the abyss will attack them and overpower and kill them. Their bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, men from every uh, people, tribe, language, and nation will gaze on their bodies and refuse them burial. The inhabitants of the earth will gloat over them and will celebrate by sending each other gifts because these two prophets had uh, tormented those who live on the earth what we're seeing there is the attacks of satan that was happening constantly in ad 90 when this was being written it's happened every age since then 
the Bible basically, you can summarize the message of the Bible is that God is at war with Satan. The message of the book of Revelation, God is at war with Satan. And verse 8 is obviously figuratively, it uses that word. Sodom and Egypt, I don't think it's talking about literal Sodom and Egypt. Uh, it's, it's kind of the moral equivalent of the non-Christian world. And by the way, Jesus was not crucified in either of those places. <laughs> this is symbolic language. And this may very well be alluding to a period of torment for God's people toward the end of time. It could be referring to that. But it also describes the tribulation experienced by God's people throughout the church age, including right now in our world when persecution is greater than it's ever been in the history of the world. Persecution, oppression, martyrdom. We live in a pagan world that in many places gloats over the suffering of Christians. And God is saying here, listen folks, they can kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. They can kill your body, but they can't kill your soul. Ramon Pedro Grau spent 26 years in a prison in Cuba for his faith under the Castro government. And he and others were eventually released and arrived in Miami. And he shared about something that happened as he was leaving the country. As he stood in his underwear for the final search, an army captain ordered him to surrender his wooden crucifix that he had kept with him his entire time in that prison. He says, give me that gadget, that trinket. And Grau grasped his cross and said, this cross has saved me. He said, this is my soul. You have had my body for 26 years in prison. If you want, uh, he goes, you can't have my soul. If you want this, you will have to kill me. And the guard backed down. You see, God needs us, his witnesses, to stand firm no matter what. People can kill our body, but they cannot kill our soul if we're truly a child of God. They cannot touch our soul. And that brings us to the good news that ends this chapter. And that is that God's lordship will be established when Christ returns. You see, the last part of chapter 11 takes us back to the end of time, and that's where chapter 6 ended. It keeps coming back to the end of time repeatedly through the, the book. And the seventh trumpet sounds. Verse 11 says, But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, the witnesses. And they stood on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven <coughs> saying, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. At that very hour, there was a severe earthquake and a tenth of the city collapsed. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the survivors were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. The third woe is coming. And I love the seventh trumpet. The seventh angel sounded his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven which said, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he will reign forever and ever. What it's saying is the king is back. King Jesus who left, he is back in all his glory. I think it's an image of the end of time of Jesus coming back to set things right. Christ is going to rule over everything absolutely, completely. World governments will be overthrown. It'll be a fulfillment of Isaiah 9 where it talks about the government being on Christ's shoulders. A fulfillment of Deuteronomy 9, a kingdom that shall never end. 
a fulfillment of David or God's prophecies to David of a, an eternal rule for his family. And it says in this passage, three things will happen. First of all, point A, there'll be a restoration of God's people. That's what 11 and 12 is talking about. After three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and terror struck those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, Come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud while their enemies looked on. See, whatever your interpretation of Revelation 11, several things are absolutely certain. God will not allow his church to be silenced forever. He won't. God rules over death, that's very clear. God's martyrs will rise again. God's word cannot be snuffed out. And God can raise you and me up from the dead. But secondly, there'll be a judgment on evil. Middle part of, or first part of verse 18 says, The nations were angry, and your wrath has come. The time has come for judging the dead. God will make things right, ultimately. He will destroy those who destroy, the end of verse 18 says. Evil will lose in the end. And God will finally respond loudly and clearly to the martyrs in chapter 6 and say, now's the time. You've been waiting, now's the time. He is Lord of the land and the sea, and he is judge of the heavens and the earth. But finally, there'll be a blessing for the righteous. See, we don't have to fear the judgment if we belong to Jesus. We do not have to fear the judgment at all. We don't have to fear the fires of hell. <laughs> Read about a man who had undergone surgery, and as he came out of the anesthesia, he asked why his room was all uh, uh, dark and how, why they had pulled the blinds on a nice sunny day. And the nurse explained to him, she said, there's a big fire across the street, and we didn't want you to wake up and think the operation was a failure. Folks, we don't have to fear the fire of judgment, whether we wake up from anesthesia or wake up from death. We do not have to fear the fire of judgment. It says there are three blessings that will come for those who have followed Christ in this life. Number one, there'll be celebration. Verse 16 and 17, And the 24 elders who were seated on the thrones before God fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, the one who is and was, because you have taken your great power and have begun to reign. The nations were angry. Your wrath has come. <laughs> the time for judging the dead and for rewarding your servants, the prophets. So it'll be party time because Christ has begun to reign and we'll be able to thank him. But then the second blessing for the righteous will be the reward. Got ahead of myself there. It says, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets, and your saints, and those who reverence your name, both small and great. God's people from all levels of society will be rewarded. And then finally, there'll be fellowship for those who have followed God. Look at this image in verse 19. It says, Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and within his temple was seen the Ark of the Covenant. And there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and a great hailstorm. A great display of God's power. But do you remember the Ark of the Covenant? The Ark of the Covenant was that that chest in the Old Testament that represented the very presence of God in all his glory. It kind of disappears in the Old Testament. Well, here it is again, finally. 
Picture it as being in heaven, the symbol of God's promise to Abraham and Israel. It was inside the Holy of Holies. In the Old Testament, only the high priest could go in there. But the image here is that any follower of Christ in heaven will be able to go right into the presence of God, right into the Ark of the Covenant that was once hidden from the average Jew. So what's God's message here? The hidden things are now revealed and people can dwell in the presence of God forever in close fellowship with him and there'll be no curtain separating us from God. All because of what Jesus did when he offered himself as a sacrifice for us. This shows God's grace and all its glory. So I ask you this morning, who do you belong to? Who do you belong to? God is Lord of the land and Lord of the sea. We can stand firm in the storms of life if we belong to God and are serving Him. No storm can touch us, no illness can touch us, no fear can touch us, no army can touch us ultimately. Someday we will each stand before God, and if we have been faithfully walking with Him in this life, covered by the blood of Jesus, we will be welcomed by Him and invited home. That's the good news. Let's ask ourselves the question at the bottom of this page. Am I for God or against him? And that's ultimately what it comes down to. We can talk about all these little differences and specifics and things like that. We can have differences on opinion of some things in Revelation. But the bottom line is, am I for God or am I against him? Is it evident to people that I am absolutely, totally for him? I speak up for him. I live for him. I live his way. I follow him. I re repent when I've hurt him. I follow him the best I can with the help of my church, with the help of his spirit. Am I for God or against him? We have a sweet message in the gospel of Christ, but it's a sour message for those who reject it. So this morning as we sing this song, it talks about an altar. And an altar, again, is one of those images in the Old Testament that basically represented the presence of God. It was something that reflected on, here's where I met with God. Sometimes people would build an altar that showed where they met with God. That's all this song's about. Say, I'm going to come to that altar, to the presence of God, and I'm going to deal with whatever I need to with Him. And I don't know what that is with you. I know about me. <laughs> But during this song this morning, let's look honestly at our lives. Let's look, maybe especially a lot of us need to look at how often, how well do we share that message outside this room? Something I need to work on. I have a suspicion that many of you do, to do as well. So let's think about what we need to change, what we need to do, how we need to follow Jesus. Be reconciled to God because he's made it possible through Jesus. Thank you for listening to the Bethlehem Church of Christ podcast. If you enjoyed this episode and think others can benefit from it, we encourage you to share it on social media, subscribe to our podcast, or leave us a rating and review on the podcast platform you use. You can also connect with us online at Bethlehem505.org or find us on Facebook. Please join us next time as we each seek to understand God's word and follow his son, Jesus Christ.